Did you know? It was rumored that Nintendo would release a second edition of the Wii console with DVD functionality in 2007. Sonic Solutions was reportedly involved with the project, sending out a press release stating Nintendo would use their products to bring DVDs to Wii. Nintendo's public relations manager, Matt Atwood, confirmed the existence of this new Wii, stating it had cost more than the standard edition due to the extra functionality. While the console never surfaced, Nintendo said it was still coming in late 2007. The twist to this tale is that DVD functionality is already built into the standard Wii console. The hardware is capable of DVD playback, but the function was never implemented officially, perhaps to save Nintendo from having to pay a small licensing fee with each console sold. DVD playback can be restored using homebrew software. Despite the Wii Remote's main innovation being its motion control, the wireless technology was possibly the most difficult part to perfect, taking two years to develop. The remote's wireless connectivity needed heavy fine-tuning. It worked well in ideal environments, but was easily interfered with. Another defining feature of the Wii was, regrettably, that it was an SD console. The Wii didn't have an option for HD output, an approach Miyamoto came to lament. In September 2006, he stated that while the Wii was not HD compatible, its successor would be. His original reasoning was that HD TVs weren't popular enough to justify adding HD output to the Wii. Most of the world still owned SD TVs, and he thought it better to offer people a new way to play with their existing TVs rather than demand they buy a new one. However, in 2013, Miyamoto said he wished the company embraced HD earlier. The advent of HD TVs came three years sooner than Nintendo anticipated. In fact, Japan was rapidly converting to HD TVs even as Nintendo promoted and launched the Wii. The Wii's launch, however successful, wasn't without its issues. On the 20th of November, a day after launch, IGN reported an update distributed through Wii Connect 24 broke faulty consoles. Running the initial Wii Connect 24 update on these faulty Wiis caused error codes 110213 or 32002 to repeat rendering the console unusable. Nintendo offered to either replace or repair such consoles. If the player wanted to keep their save data, they'd need to send the Wii to Nintendo, waiting up to two weeks to play the console they bought on launch day. Some also reported that leaving the Wii on its side would make it overheat, even if it was on standby. Another issue the Wii struggled with was third-party support. Because the Wii lacked the processing power of the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3, reworking games for Wii hardware would have taken considerable effort. This didn't stop some developers from trying, however. In December 2016, Redfly Studios showcased several Wii prototypes of various games they conceptualized for the console. Among these demos were the original Devil May Cry, a reimagining of Namco's Dig Dug, Star Wars X-Wing vs. TIE Fighter 2, and most impressively, a functional demo of Batman Arkham Asylum. Despite the Wii's comparatively limited power, Redfly managed to reproduce many of the game's functions as well as its visual style faithfully on the Wii. Unfortunately, this demo wasn't pursued by the license holders. Nintendo made physical activity a focus with the Wii. However, a British medical journal study found the physical act of playing the Wii wasn't intense enough to replace real exercise. Wii players only expended around 2% more energy than those playing regular games. Nintendo's focus on health continued when at E3 2009, Nintendo announced the Wii Vitality Sensor, a device capable of measuring the player's pulse. It was intended to aid relaxation by monitoring stress, anxiety, and sleep patterns. It 
could also have been used in horror games to measure how scared the player was. However, this prototype was never released. According to Iwata, after a large-scale internal test, it was discovered the sensor didn't work consistently, only performing as intended on 9 out of 10 test subjects. While this ratio may seem high, it wasn't good enough for Nintendo. They would only be happy releasing the product if it worked on 999 out of 1,000 people, not 900 out of 1,000. And the Wii didn't improve everyone's health. In 2007, Dr. Julio Bonis awoke with pain in his shoulder, despite not having done much strenuous activity. He soon realized the pain was caused by playing the Wii too often, specifically Wii Sports' tennis. He coined the term Wii-itis in a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine, stating painkillers and a break from playing Wii allowed him to make a full recovery. Unlike with the real sport, a player's endurance is not a factor with Wii Sports' tennis, and so it's possible for a player to strain themselves unwittingly. Bonis sent the report after his friend complained of a similar condition. This was far from the first condition to arise as a result of playing video games, however. Space Invaders led to a condition called Space Invaders Wrist, a form of repetitive strain caused by mashing buttons too quickly. The Wii U controller was somewhat inspired by one of the Wii's more unlikely features. The light inside the disc slot notified the player when they got a message. There was a limit to how much information the light could convey, especially considered how sophisticated TVs had become in displaying information. The desire to create a version of the Wii's light that could convey more information led to the idea of a second, smarter monitor that displayed the status of the Wii. This idea evolved into the Wii U. The Wii Remote continued to be used with the Wii U, partly due to the success of the Wii Motion Plus add-on. Miyamoto considered this the Wii Remote's ideal form, and felt it revitalized the controller enough that Nintendo could continue to use it for the Wii's successor. At some point, the Wii Remote was intended to function as a television remote. This may have been tied to the scrap DVD functionality, but it was ultimately used in the Japan-exclusive TV no Tomo Channel G Guide for Wii. The technology was adopted more fruitfully in the Wii U's gamepad. The speaker in the Wii Remote was included at the suggestion of Yut Saido, developer of Odama and Sega Dreamcast cult game Seaman. Both games make heavy use of sound. He advised Nintendo that, with a speaker in the controller, the Wii Remote could ring like a phone, among other functions. Teams at Nintendo were enthusiastic about the idea, and after weighing the costs and benefits, included it. A microphone wasn't added due to cost and ease of use concerns. If the controller had a headset inside or attached to it, it would be more complicated to use. Nintendo faced many lawsuits as a result of the Wii's success and its proprietary technology. While they won most of their legal battles, in 2017 a jury found the Wii and Wii U infringed upon one particular patent held by Texan company iLife Technologies. While iLife accused Nintendo of infringing on many of their patents, the jury found Nintendo violated only one, a patent on motion sensing technology used to monitor the safety of infants and the elderly. Nintendo was instructed to pay iLife $10.1 million in damages, far less than the almost $150 million the company asked for. Nintendo appealed the case based on an improperly written description in iLife's patent, but lost. Due to the Wii's family-friendly image, many of its games were subject to censorship. However, some of this censorship was frankly unnecessary. A prime example of this can be seen in the PAL release of Metroid Prime 3 Corruption, and in all versions of Prime 3 in the Wii's Metroid Prime Trilogy release. In the game's briefing dialogue cutscene, Admiral Dane says, Damn! They're targeting the planetary defense system! This line was censored in PAL and Trilogy releases, where the word damn is replaced with no. 
A similarly inconsequential change was made in the European version of Super Paper Mario. In North America, Dementio insults Luigi by calling his mustache a shag. This phrasing was changed in the UK as the word shag has sexual connotations. Instead, Dementio simply calls Luigi a pushover in the PAL release. Did you know? Development of Wii Sports began before the Wii console even had a finalized design. A small team of programmers were given prototype controllers and told to develop tech demos to show off the new motion controls. This team included director of Wii Sports Tennis, Keizo Ota. Using the prototype Wii controller as a tennis racket was one of the first ideas the team had. The idea worked so well that Nintendo decided to produce a full game based on the concept, and the team came up with several game-worthy ideas as they developed it. Shigeru Miyamoto divided the ideas into two categories, games based on sports and games for the whole family. The sports games were bundled into Wii Sports, while the family games were used in Wii Play. Initially, Wii Sports was only going to include three mini-games, tennis, golf, and baseball. Nintendo felt this collection offered a good variety of content. However, baseball isn't very popular in Europe, and the developers realized players there might only be interested in tennis and golf. To compensate, Nintendo decided to add just one more sport and had to decide between bowling or boxing. Bowling appealed to a demographic of people who didn't usually play video games, but boxing was a great example of how the nunchuck could be used. In the end, they included both. While working on the original Wii Sports, Nintendo snuck in a few nods to earlier games. One notable reference is that in the golf game, all of the levels are remakes of courses featured in golf on the original NES. The main team for Wii Sports didn't include a graphic designer, so one of the major hurdles they faced was coming up with playable characters. In an Iwata Asks interview, Oda stated, We tried using Mario as a character once, but then it didn't feel like we were the ones playing anymore. It felt like Mario was actually the one playing and we were just controlling him. But when we used simple models, it actually felt like we were the ones in the game. This gave the developers the idea of using character models that looked like the players themselves. Originally, the developers wanted players to import digital photos of themselves from an SD card and copy their faces onto their character through the game. This process proved to be too complicated for people who weren't familiar with the technology, and Nintendo wanted the game to be accessible to as many people as possible. Around this time, Miyamoto showed the developers prototype software that made simplistic caricatures based on Japanese Kokeshi dolls. The Wii Sports team fell in love with the designs and decided to use the character creator in Wii Sports. But while developing the software, they realized the idea had potential beyond Wii Sports. This gave birth to the Wii's Mii channel and led to Mii characters being used in a variety of games. Since its release, Wii Sports has officially become the best-selling console game of all time. While this is largely due to it being bundled with the Wii system in most parts of the world, the game was sold separately in Japan and still managed to become the best-selling Wii game in the region. To date, Wii Sports has sold around 83 million copies worldwide. To put this in perspective, Wii Sports alone accounts for roughly 10% of all Wii software sales. Because of its popularity, the game received widespread attention in pop culture and was featured on sitcoms, late-night talk shows, Hollywood movies, and the 80th Annual Academy Awards. 
This runaway popularity hasn't always been a good thing, however. In March of 2009, a group of detectives investigated a home as part of a drug raid. At the scene, they found illegal substances, weapons, and other incriminating evidence. Even though the bust was successful, the detectives later landed in hot water when security footage caught them playing bowling on the suspect's copy of Wii Sports during the hours following the raid. Outside of recreational gaming, Wii Sports has also been used for medical purposes. In 2007, boxer Albert Lea sustained serious brain damage during a match, leaving him confined to a wheelchair. Doctors at Glenrose Rehabilitation Hospital in Edmonton, Canada incorporated Wii Sports boxing as part of his physical therapy regimen. Lea regained full use of his legs just months later. Similarly, in Landstuhl, Germany, doctors used Wii Sports to help treat wounded military veterans. In fact, the game was used in hospitals all over the world to help patients suffering from strokes and spinal cord injuries, as well as in retirement homes. Wii Sports has proven to be immensely popular with older players. The world record for most perfect games played in Wii Sports Bowling is held by John Bates, who claimed the record in 2011 at the age of 85. To date, he has bowled 20,000 perfect games, all of which he recorded in his own home. Although Wii Sports eventually got a sequel in the form of Wii Sports Resort, former Nintendo president Satoru Iwata was initially hesitant. He felt creating a sequel would be taking the easy route and wanted to focus more on creating new and original games. But when the Wii Motion Plus attachment was announced, Wii Sports Resort was created to show off its enhanced motion controls. In Resort, developers wanted to avoid reusing games from Wii Sports, so they considered alternatives such as Marine and Winter Sports. Eventually, they decided to base the game around a Resort feel, which influenced the selection of activities in the final game. One of their ideas was a game based around the Japanese Kendama toy, but it was scrapped because it didn't fit the theme. Fishing and water slide games also failed to make the cut. Wii Sports Resort was originally not going to include golf either. However, during an interview while developing the game, Miyamoto mentioned that golf swings would now be determined by the player's backswing. When Miyamoto visited the team after the interview, he told them, You know, we're including golf now. Golf was effectively included because of Miyamoto's slip-up during the interview. Wii Sports Resort was meant to be the start of a new franchise, though not in the way you might think. The island in the game, Woohoo Island, was envisioned as the star of an entire series of games based on an idea Miyamoto had been toying with for 10 years. In theory, the series would include titles across different genres, including adventure games, simulation games, and RPGs, all set on Woohoo Island. Over the course of these games, players would become acquainted with the layout of the island until it felt like a familiar neighborhood. Ultimately, Miyamoto hoped Woohoo Island would become an iconic Nintendo staple in its own right, on the level of Mario or The Legend of Zelda. Did you know? The idea for No More Heroes came after Goichi Suda wanted to change a pace after finishing Killer7. Realizing that his games had thus far been fairly stoic, Suda set out to prove that he and his team at Grasshopper Manufacture could make a game that was unique and outrageous. After Killer7, Suda worked on both Samurai Champloo's Sidetracked and Blood Plus One Night Kiss. 
Although licensed anime games, each served a key role in layering the groundwork for No More Heroes, and Suda himself considers all three games to form a sword action trilogy. Another pivotal moment in No More Heroes' creation was when Suda saw the Wii Remote. Inspired by its unique design, he immediately tried to ensure that No More Heroes would take advantage of the controller's features. However, Suda ran into issues when his publishers demanded that the game be made for the Xbox 360 instead. As he was shown the controller before the Wii's official public reveal, Suda struggled to convince his publishers to let him make the game on Nintendo's new upcoming console without revealing its hardware secrets. Nevertheless, he eventually won them over. At first, the team attempted designing No More Heroes to use a single Wii remote and streamline the game as much as possible to fit this design. However, after struggling to make this control scheme work and feel fun, the idea was eventually scrapped. Suda then decided to mix the Wii's motion controls with classic button pressing to achieve the best of both worlds. Similarly, other aspects of the game combined different inspirations as well. The character of Travis Touchdown was somewhat based on Johnny Knoxville and his antics on the reality stunt show Jackass. Suda would regularly show his team the scene where Johnny has his nipple bit by a baby alligator in Jackass the movie to illustrate the kind of character Travis was meant to be. Incidentally, Knoxville wears a pair of aviator sunglasses in this scene which bear a striking resemblance to the ones worn by Travis. Travis was also based on Josh Barnett, a former UFC heavyweight and professional wrestler who is a huge fan of Magic the Gathering and whose nickname, The War Master, references the tabletop wargame Warhammer 40k. Some have wondered why Travis is often associated with tiger symbolism and iconography in all of the various games. This includes designs on his jacket, his morphine ability in No More Heroes 2, and his special move in Travis Strikes Again. This is because, in Japanese, Travis's name is Torabisu Tachidaun. The first part of the name, Tora, means tiger in Japanese. These are far from the only inspirations in No More Heroes, though. The character Sylvia Christel is modeled after actress Scarlett Johansson, and the motel Travis lives in is inspired by the one seen in Christopher Nolan's movie Memento. The plot of hunting down a number of assassins is also influenced by the cult film El Topo. Even the name of the game is taken from a song attributed by English punk rock band The Stranglers. Interestingly, while No More Heroes' beam katanas have often been compared to Star Wars' lightsabers, Suda claims they were actually inspired by the Schwartz rings from Mel Brooks' comedy Spaceballs instead. This sense of humor even extended to the game's launch in Japan, where producer Yashihiro Wada joined Suda autographed copies of the game while giving away No More Heroes' branded toilet paper rolls. Japanese journalists flocked to cover the launch event, but after 20 minutes of standing outside the game store, not a single fan had approached them. Eventually, a Famitsu reporter took pity on the duo and finally bought a copy himself. No More Heroes' part-time jobs have often been criticized as tedious and grindy. This may be fitting, however, as Suda claims that the minigames were inspired by his and the team's less-than-pleasant past experiences trying to make ends meet. Suda explained, We want to include the message in our games that some jobs aren't important and you may hate them, but if you do them to the best of your ability, it'll turn out well. Better times will come. On the flip side, while No More Heroes' stylistic ultra-violence has won praise from fans and critics, it's also landed the game in hot water with censors in the past. For example, the Japanese version of the game replaced a vast majority of the blood with Black Mist. 
Players can't cut enemies in half, and the game's cutscenes were reanimated to... At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Remove any instances of dismemberment or decapitation. Although Suda originally planned to leave No More Heroes uncensored in North America and Europe, he later stated that the European game would need to be censored like the Japanese release in consideration of the broadly growing Wii market. This sparked outcry among European gamers. So when No More Heroes 2 was announced, Suda was bombarded by reporters asking if the sequel would be censored in Europe as well. Striving to give fans what they want this time around, Suda announced plans for two versions of the game, one that was censored and an extreme uncut release. Despite this announcement, however, the censored version would eventually be dropped altogether. European fans wouldn't be able to experience the original game in all its glory until the release of No More Heroes, Heroes Paradise in 2011. Now, while the Japanese version of the port was censored on the PS3, the 360 edition was left completely uncut, causing Japan's video game ratings board to give the game a Z, the equivalent to an AO by the ESRB. While working on No More Heroes 2 Desperate Struggle, Suda was influenced by the mix of violence and emotional drama from a film by Kinji Fukusaku. In fact, while the movie's title is often translated as Battles Without Honor and Humanity, Deadly Fight in Hiroshima, or Hiroshima Deathmatch, Shito Hen can be translated as Deadly Struggle, which inspired the game's subtitle. Meanwhile, the game's peep show scenes mirror those from Suda's favorite movie, Paris, Texas. Though the music of the original No More Heroes was entirely composed between Masafumi Takata and Jun Fukuda, No More Heroes 2's soundtrack features over 20 musicians. To pull all of this off, the game's sound coordinator Nobuhiko Sagara was tasked with reading the script to figure out what type of music would best fit each scene in the game. Afterwards, he found musicians, gave them direction, filled out contracts, and even attended the recording sessions to make sure every song was perfect for the game. To illustrate the theme of revenge, the music went in a heavier, rougher direction with a greater emphasis on guitars compared to the first game. And to prevent the soundtrack from becoming too monotonous, genres such as pop, jazz, and R&B were thrown into the mix as well. No More Hero 2's abundance of retro minigames came from Suda's dissatisfaction with how few 8-bit elements made it into the first game. Originally, Suda tasked the studio with creating just three 8-bit games. However, the team had so much fun making them that every game eventually became 8-bit. As more and more minigames were being added, things got a little out of hand and Suda had to tell the team to stop. Regardless, some of the devs didn't really get the hint and continued to work on them until the project was completely thrown off schedule. However, Suda was ultimately proud of his team's work and felt it was worth it in the end, despite the delays. While fans have been clamoring for Travis's return for years, Suda initially intended No More Heroes 2 to be Travis's final game. In a 2012 interview with 1UP, Suda commented, I want to continue the No More Heroes series, but I finished the story for Travis. So I want to think of a different story, a different character, or something like that within the series. 
In fact, No More Heroes World Ranker, a Japanese exclusive online mobile game released that same year, stars a custom avatar instead of Travis. Travis strikes again, No More Heroes likely wouldn't exist today if it weren't for the indie smash hit Hotline Miami. Suda was floored by the game's brutally fatal combat and daring design, especially when compared to modern AAA games. After personally meeting the game's developers Jonathan Soderstrom and Dennis Wedden, Suda was inspired to work on a smaller indie-style game of his own, convincing Gung Ho Online Entertainment to let him work on a new game with a core team of just five members after finishing up work on Let It Die. At first, this new project had originally nothing to do with No More Heroes. It wasn't until 2016 when Nintendo showed Suda a prototype of the Switch that he realized his new game could serve as a perfect means of bringing No More Heroes back into the spotlight. He then reworked the game's storyline to revolve around fan favorite Travis Touchdown. The reveal of this new game made waves due to fans' anticipation and Suda51's translator's inability to keep up with him. Suda admitted that he was supposed to follow a script, but decided to ad-lib at the last minute. While his friends and colleagues applauded this move, he felt guilty for the trouble he caused his interpreter. To make it up to him, Suda personally met the translator after the event with a gift to apologize. Initially, Travis Strikes Again was going to be an indie crossover game with Travis battling his way through the worlds of numerous independent titles. However, Suda realized that the amount of back and forth required to keep everything true to the worlds of each game would be impossible to pull off with their development schedule. Nevertheless, Suda was sure to collaborate with Denaton Games to include a piece of Hotline Miami in Travis Strikes Again, among many others. While indies have made a massive impact on Travis Strikes Again, the title's themes of games within games was directly influenced by Suda's previous work on Let It Die. In fact, Suda has confirmed that Travis's haunted video game console, the Death Drive Mark II, is the predecessor to the Death Drive 128 seen in Let It Die. Another interesting fact from Travis Strikes Again is that every skill chip Travis can acquire is actually named after a model of Gundam. Suda decided to put No More Heroes in the game's subtitle as he doesn't consider Travis Strikes Again to be a direct sequel to No More Heroes 2, as it differs in story, themes, and gameplay. On the other hand, he doesn't consider the game to be a spin-off either, explaining in an interview, Travis Strikes Again is something of a stepping stone on the road to No More Heroes 3, so the way I'd like people to think of this game is the beginning of a new battle for Travis, a new series within the series. The Wii moved away from typical controllers, giving people the ability to control their games by simply moving their body. It's no wonder this major change in mainstream gaming peripherals warranted a codename of immense gravitas. And so, before being called the Nintendo Wii, the console was called the Nintendo Revolution. But perhaps the concept of this shift in controller wasn't quite so brand new, and was more of an evolution than a revolution. Nintendo's previous console, the GameCube, had what many considered a fairly standard controller, though perhaps slightly funky in shape and design. However, in 2006, patents surfaced, showing a device extremely similar to the Wii Remote that could be used with the GameCube through a simple plug-in receiver. The device would wirelessly connect to a remote-shaped controller with movement detected by what appears to be IR sensors. For many years, no other evidence of this GameCube concept surfaced. But in 2018, images of a similar prototype emerged on Twitter. This prototype differed from the original patented designs, utilizing a sensor bar more closely resembling the Wii sensor bar. This bar was also attached to the console via the memory card slot, similar to the GameCube microphone attachment. 
the remote controller prototype connected to the console via a cable rather than using a wireless receiver, and differed from the final Wii remote design, having lowercase a and b buttons in place of the 1 and 2 buttons. Interestingly, the controller also has a home button, an input that wouldn't have been recognized by GameCube systems. This suggests that rather than being a prototype controller designed to work with the GameCube, it is in fact a prototype of what would become the Wii Remote Controller itself. It's very likely that, as the hardware of the GameCube is very similar to that of the Wii, Nintendo simply used the GameCube to test out their motion controls without having to also develop new console hardware during early design stages. One unusual concept for the Wii can be uncovered by looking through the console's internal files. Several files within the system's data suggest that the Wii Remote would have had more functions. Not just a controller for a Nintendo console, but also a controller for a television. One texture shows how the function would have controlled, with left and right changing the TV's volume, one acting as a power button, and two changing the TV's inputs. Another unused texture is simply an icon with the label TV. This functionality wasn't completely dropped by Nintendo. In Japan, an application for the Wii called TV Notomo Channel G Guide allowed players to use their console to browse a Japanese TV guide. And in 2005, Nintendo offered a universal TV remote shaped like a Wii remote to its club Nintendo customers. And of course, this concept was included within the Wii successor, the Wii U. A software development kit, or SDK, is provided by a console manufacturer to game developers so that they can get to know the console while making games. Usually within this collection of development tools are a number of example files which developers can examine to help understand the system. One of the example files found within the Nintendo Wii's SDK is an archive file called constitu.arc. Within this are several text files which contain the first three articles of the Constitution of the United States, laying out how the government is to be separated into three branches. Each article is separated from one another with different directories, while each section is contained within its own file. The reason for this inclusion is because of the copyrights surrounding the US Constitution, as it is entirely free to redistribute. This allowed Nintendo to include a large volume of text with practical real-world content for developers to work with while starting production of a game, rather than a random string of letters or words. As one might imagine, as a result of this, it appears some developers, such as Frame Studios, creators of Gem Smashers, forgot to remove this file from the final retail copies of their game. As such, it's possible to unearth this file within Gem Smasher's data. Speaking of hidden data within games, The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess may not have originally been a Wii game, but the game's high sales at launch made the title synonymous with the console. The game was the biggest in the series at the time, which led to features being left out and ideas scrapped. One unused item in the game's data is likely an older iteration of the leaf that players used to snowboard down from Snowpeak. The internal name of this item is Shield Surfing, and the icon uses the menu graphic for the Hylian Shield. All this seems to indicate that Link would have originally used his shield to sled down the mountain rather than the leaf in the final game, just like in Breath of the Wild. Huh, didn't know that one. Another popular Nintendo franchise that made it to the Wii was Donkey Kong. Rare's Donkey Kong Country on the Super Nintendo was undoubtedly a smash hit, selling more than 9 million copies. It was also credited as not just reviving Donkey Kong, but also extending the console's lifespan while next-gen titans like the PlayStation were hitting store shelves. Interestingly, in November 2010, in celebration of the release of Donkey Kong Country Returns, Nintendo filed to trademark the phrase, it's on like Donkey Kong, for promotional purposes. They announced on their official press page, 
For those unfamiliar with the term, it's on like Donkey Kong, is an old, popular Nintendo phrase that has a number of possible interpretations depending on how it's used. In addition to Nintendo's use, it has been used in popular music, television and film over the years, pointing to Donkey Kong's status as an enduring pop culture icon and video game superstar. Though the origin of the phrase is unclear with the most reputable sources, like an Urban Dictionary user citing arcade owner Robert Morey originating the phrase in the 1980s. The post states, Rob would close down his arcade for the night, he would grab a Colt 45, tall can slam it and scream, it's on like Donkey Kong. He'd then proceed to go out and get wasted and try to get laid. However, one thing we do know for sure is that it was popularized by rapper Ice Cube in his 1992 track, Now I Got a Wetcher. Nintendo's trademark was successful, though some people still raised objection to it, with TechCrunch's Devin Coldway calling the move reprehensible, saying, I don't recall ever seeing it in any games or on box art or even in promotional materials. The phrase has been public use for probably 20 years at least, and Nintendo hasn't made a single attempt to own it. Donkey Kong wasn't the only franchise that was planned to get a new lease of life on the Wii. There were plans to revitalize the cult classic Klonoa series, with an all-new title for the Nintendo Wii. However, according to Klonoa director Hideo Yoshizawa, after a supervisor from Bandai cast doubt on the success of the game, claiming that it would be too expensive, it was decided that Bandai Namco would create a remake of the original game instead. This remake was intended to test the waters of the market. If it was successful, the company would move forward with a port of the second game to then be followed up with a third and all-new installment in the series. However, the Wii remake was not the success they had hoped for, and thus the idea was scrapped in its entirety. Bizarrely, the game's box included a coupon that gave players a free taco from the restaurant chain Wahoo's. While a clever play on the sound Klonoa makes, <laughs> Yoshizawa said he was unaware of the inclusion, and that he would have considered it a good idea had the chain been more widespread. While some games didn't find success on the Wii, others certainly did. With the incredibly popular revival of one of Britain's longest-running and much-beloved TV shows, Doctor Who, it was inevitable that the show would transcend to the video game market, with the BBC opting to make a game on the hugely popular Nintendo Wii. Developed by Asylum Entertainment, Doctor Who Return to Earth starred Matt Smith, who played the 11th Doctor at the time. However, the game has a connection to a previous incarnation of the Doctor as well. Sam Kent Smith, one of the 3D artists who worked on the game, is in fact the son of Percy James Patrick Kent Smith, otherwise known as Sylvester McCoy, who portrayed the seventh incarnation of the Time Lord from 1987 to 1989 and again in 1996. We all know that Pokemon's creators like to make spin-off games from time to time. This brought us a few one-off titles like Pokemon Snap, but it also created a few sub-series of spin-offs using the Pokemon brand such as Pokemon Ranger. One alternative series of Pokemon games which saw a favourable response from fans was Pokemon Mystery Dungeon. Japan actually received three versions of Mystery Dungeon created exclusively for the Nintendo Wii, made available as WiiWare downloads. Today we'll be looking at these games, titled Pokemon Mystery Dungeon, Keep Going Blazing Adventure Squad, Let's Go Stormy Adventure Squad, and go for it, Light Adventure Squad! Released in late 2009, Pokemon's WiiWare Mystery Dungeon titles were made available through Nintendo's eShop for around 1200 Wii points, or about $12 each. 
Developed by Chunsoft and published by Nintendo, these three entries mark the only time that Mystery Dungeon has appeared on a home console, as well as being the only entries to not receive an international release. Often referred to as the Adventure Squad series, contrary to the other Mystery Dungeon games, the title puts little emphasis on storyline. The game's story starts with a group of Pokémon being sent by Slow King to rescue a lost Shuckle. After returning to town, he explains that he was searching for some delicious food. I can relate to that. A story that will continue to unfold as progress is made. This then opens up the game's bulletin board, where other Pokémon post requests for the player to undertake in exchange for rewards. Depending on which of the three iterations is being played, the hub world will differ. For Blazing Squad, the location is Pokémon Village, located near a volcano. In Stormy Squad, the player is based on Pokémon Beach, and for Light Squad, the hub is Pokémon Garden, located in a forest. A number of stores and facilities are available in these locations, such as a bank for storing money, a warehouse for storing items, a shop for buying items, a store to relearn attacks that Pokémon have forgotten, as well as a place that allows players to open dungeon treasure chests for a small fee. The games make use of the same 3D graphics featured in My Pokémon Ranch, another WiiWare release which simplified the graphical style of each Pokémon, with Nintendo aiming for something which resembles a picture book. The Mystery Dungeon games play like any standard roguelike titles, with characters moving simultaneously but taking turns to attack on a grid. Each character is able to perform a standard attack as well as a variety of special moves. A new feature introduced with these titles is the ability to stack Pokémon through the use of a mounting ditch tile. By piling Pokémon on top of one another, it's possible to not just move all of the player's team as a single unit, but also attack. This combines all of their health, but reduces their variety of strengths and weaknesses. All units in a tower will effectively be limited by the party leader, having the entire team have their same elemental type. Weather can also vary from floor to floor, or can even be changed by Pokémon attacks. Adverse weather will cause Pokémon towers to collapse unless a member of the tower has an affinity for the bad weather in effect, but each type of weather can cause a variety of other effects as well. Each Pokémon has a size rating, determining their position within a tower stack. These are represented through stars ranging from 1 to 5. A Pokémon can only carry a single unit who is its same size, but any number of Pokémon as long as they are smaller. For example, it is possible to have a stack of two 5-star Pokémon and two 4-star Pokémon. The maximum party size is limited to 4 Pokémon. While navigating dungeons, the player will recover health outside of battle. However, they will also become increasingly hungry. If not fed, Pokémon will not only stop recovering HP from movement, but its HP will also slowly begin to drain. By defeating enemies and gaining experience, or fulfilling other requirements, Pokémon are able to evolve. However, all of the same rules for combat apply to not just the player, but also enemies. When a team member is defeated, enemy Pokémon may level up and evolve, creating a greater challenge. They too are able to stack, increasing their strength. By defeating enemies, there is a chance for them to request to join the player's team. Boss battles will always result in the Pokémon requesting to join. However, Pokémon met in the standard dungeon-crawling sections will only sometimes choose to follow the player. Each game has 15 dungeons to explore, totaling 45 in all, as is the standard with Mystery Dungeon releases. The differences between each release are minor, mostly altering the location names as well as the Pokémon that appear within each dungeon. Also different to prior entries in the series is how the player decides their initial starting Pokémon, being given a choice rather than it being determined through a short quiz. All three games work in tandem with one another. 
allowing for persistent save data across each release. Using save data from another game will keep the team name, all obtained Pokemon, money, items, and rank, though it will not provide any story progress. This also increases the capacity limit for stored items and Pokemon, increasing with each additional game accessed from the save. Normally, when the leading Pokemon is wiped out, the player will lose half of their held money as well as half of their other items before being kicked out of the dungeon. But by making use of the game's online functionality, it's possible to post a mission over Wi-Fi connection to rescue your team with SOS mail. These can be posted privately to friends or publicly so that anyone can take on the request. Additional missions can be added to the game through the Wii's Wii Connect 24 feature, which will download while the Wii is in sleep mode. For a short period after the game was released, several promotional codes were distributed as well, which could be entered through the game's Wonder Mail menu. These codes would be used to unlock unique Pokémon who the player could then use throughout dungeons. These titles never saw release outside of Japan, but this doesn't mean that they were never intended to be translated. Copyright filings were made in the United States for each game title, not with just their direct translations, but also a second set of filings for reimagined subtitles putting the element at the end of their names. The names were Forward Adventurers of Flame, Let's Go Adventurers of Storm, and Aspire Adventurers of Light. IGN reported on the games multiple times assuming that they would receive international localization, but this never came to fruition. To many, the lack of release stateside was surprising, seeing as the Pokemon franchise has always had a strong following outside of Japan. The Wii had a massive install base in 2009 and 2010, so why the games never surfaced in the West remains a bit of a… mystery. When the Wii was released in 2006, people were keen to learn about any new games that might see release with the unique take on a gaming console. Motion controls blew audiences away, changing the rules of what games are limited to. Today, we'll be looking at a game which was announced early on in the Wii lifecycle, but saw several delays before ultimately being dropped from publication in the United States. That game was Disaster Day of Crisis. Disaster Day of Crisis was released in 2008 for the Wii, developed by Monolith Soft and published by Nintendo in Japan, Europe, and Australia. The game involves the player attempting to survive several natural disasters while at the same time fighting against a terrorist organization and trying to rescue civilians. The game puts the player in the role of Raymond Bryce, an ex-US Marine and member of the International Rescue Team. During a routine rescue mission near the dormant volcano of Mount Agulhas, just as everything seems to be wrapping up, an unexpected eruption causes debris to destroy a recovery helicopter with Ray and his partner, Steve Hewitt, now trapped on an erupting volcano. Whilst trying to escape danger, Steve leaves Raymond with an antique compass, with the promise that he would give it to Steve's sister, Lisa, in the event that he couldn't himself. Soon after, it's another eruption, and Steve Hewitt tragically sacrifices his own life in order to save Ray. Little did Ray know, this would not be the worst day of his life. A year after the tragedy, Ray has still been unable to forgive himself for his partner's death, lacking even the courage to face Lisa and tell her about what unfolded. 
Ray has since quit the rescue team, instead taking on the role of a public servant. He is asked to meet Special Agent Olsen from the Blue Ridge City FBI Division, who informs Ray that a former Marine Special Forces unit called Surge has stolen an array of nuclear weapons and kidnapped the seismologist Dr. Davis, as well as his assistant, Lisa Hewitt, Steve's sister. The organization has issued demands to the American government, threatening to detonate their nuclear weapons should the White House not comply within the next 24 hours. Ray, after fighting over his internal conflicts, makes the decision to seek redemption, and chooses to participate in the mission for Lisa's sake, vowing to save her after he was unable to do the same for her brother. Though Ray was only recruited as a liaison between both Agent Olsen and Blue Ridge City officials, he winds up being thrust into the middle of the situation, having to take on all of the terrorists within Surge's ranks almost single-handedly, after several extreme natural disasters unfold. Disaster plays in a variety of different styles throughout the adventure. With a total of 23 stages to play through, and several different goals throughout, the bulk of the game takes the form of a third-person adventure title. The player can move around environments, inspect items, and perform basic platforming skills. With the use of a stamina gauge, the player is able to sprint, and if the player catches fire, they must wiggle the remote and nunchuck. The player will have to traverse through dangerous terrain, so catching fire is to be expected. By shaking the Wii Remote when a circular icon appears, the player is able to attack objects, opening new pathways, and obtaining items. The player can find a small selection of items, including ridiculously oversized hamburgers, meat, or drinks, which will be consumed immediately. Crackers and medicines can also be found, which will go into the player's inventory to be used at a later time. Ray is also able to take a deep breath to help clear his lungs after he's been caught up in smoke or toxic air. Clocked up lungs will have a negative effect on Ray's performance, and if his lungs become completely filled with toxic air, he will die. A heart rate is also displayed in the top left corner of the screen in the form of a red circle. As Ray's heart rate increases, this circle also increases in size. If it gets too big, the player's stamina will take a huge hit, preventing the player from performing physically demanding tasks. Throughout the game's events, a variety of other gameplay modes are introduced, requiring different uses of the Wiimote and Nunchuck. During gunplay segments, the player must point their remote at their target and shoot like a light gun game, with the ability to take cover. To reload, the nunchuck must be shaken, and the player is able to focus zoom to get a more accurate shot, though this has its own focus meter that will be depleted. There are also a variety of different weapons available, though ammo must be found during exploration segments. Driving portions require the player to use their Wiimote horizontally, steering with tilt controls, and the buttons providing acceleration and a handbrake. There's also a variety of different smaller quicktime events scattered throughout the game. While traversing levels, Ray can also call out to people who are in need of help. As Ray is also tasked with rescuing civilians, he must first locate an injured person before performing whatever task might be required. These can vary in nature, such as tapping a button to lift a heavy object, reaching out at the right time to grab somebody in danger, identifying, cleaning, and bandaging wounds, or simply just carrying them to safety, making sure to rescue the civilian before their stamina gauge is depleted.
Survival points are rewarded based on the civilian's remaining stamina. The player is also able to find small icons which will also earn SP. By spending the player's earned SP, they can improve Ray's various stats, bolstering his abilities. Points are also rewarded separately for gunplay segments, which can be used to purchase new weapons or improve the player's current selection. Some weapons cannot be unlocked until a shooting range has been completed, testing the player's shooting skills. The player is also able to come across a variety of unlockable outfits for Ray, as well as additional weapons. After the game has been completed, a variety of new options are unlocked, including extra disaster files which explain more of the game's backstory, a final shooting gallery, movie and artwork galleries, and an alternate ending. An additional harder difficulty is also unlocked, called Real Disaster Mode. Disaster was originally intended to have a more traditional control scheme, prior to adopting a more Wii-specific style of game. The decision to move away from using the Wii's classic controller or GameCube controllers was made by Nintendo, likely as a means of setting the title apart from something released on other or earlier platforms. It may surprise some to learn that a lot of Disaster's animations, particularly with its cutscenes, make use of motion capture. Footage of the game's motion capture actors shows that a lot of the characters' stunts, like flying away from explosions, were all created using practical effects, with actors being attached to a series of wires and thrown around a room. When being brought to a Western audience, several lines of the game's dialogue were changed at the request of Nintendo of America. The company was allegedly unhappy with much of what had been created, and had the game's voice actors re-record revised dialogue. Prior to this request, the game's Western release was allegedly practically complete. These changes can be seen in the game's European release compared to its original Japanese dialogue, such as the terrorist organization being renamed, from Storm in Japan to Surge in Europe. Their name is Storm. Storm. Never heard of them. Their name is Surge. Surge. Never heard of them. Voice actors had already finished recording their lines with the organization under the name Storm, so they had to be called back to re-record. Another thing of note is the game's use of cutscenes. With many games, the introduction sequence will include snippets of the title, using existing visuals. But for Disaster, many of the shots which are referenced during the opening cinematic are clearly using higher quality assets than would appear in the final release. Why this decision was made, making later shots seem significantly lackluster compared to the initial presentation given to the player, certainly is strange. While Disaster wasn't released outside of Europe, Japan, or Australia, Raymond Bryce would appear in the United States over 10 years later, but only as a spirit within Super Smash Bros. Ultimate on the Nintendo Switch. In the early days of Disaster's development, plans for a North American release were put in place. The game was first demonstrated at E3 in 2006, in a non-playable video presentation. During this stage of development, only the classic controller was being utilized, with the title taking on a more action-oriented gameplay experience. A year after this demo, Monolith had reworked the game's interface in order to incorporate the system's Wiimote controller. Disaster Day of Crisis was initially set to be released very early in the Wii's launch window, but was severely delayed. Tadashi Nomura, one of the game's producers, puts this down to several issues. Firstly, the team had to come to understand the Wii hardware and 
what potential it held. And secondly, they weren't particularly familiar with anything but RPGs. After the 2006 announcement, more news was only revealed at E3 2007 during an interview with Nintendo of America marketing director Beth Llewellyn, who confirmed that the game was still in active development. In April 2008, Famitsu revealed a release date of July 3rd that year, but in May, Monolith announced that the game had been postponed indefinitely in order for the team to increase the game's quality upon its eventual release. August of 2008 and the Australian Office of Film and Literature Classification provided the game with an M rating, leading many to assume the game was close to completion. A week after this news hit, Nintendo confirmed, once again, that the game was still in development. Finally, the game's confirmed release dates were revealed – September 2008 for Japan and October for Europe. There is no single reason why Disaster never saw release in the United States, but rather the culmination of several problems. After the game was released in Japan, sales were exceptionally sluggish, selling only 15,000 copies in its first week. Nomura blamed poor sales within Japan as being the result of the region's playing habits. He argued that disaster movies and panic-based action were more popular with Westerners. Reviews were generally middle ground, or negative. This made it clear that the game would not be the shining success that both Monolith and Nintendo had hoped for. It would be a month later that the game would be released in EU territories. And this is when the Western world began to understand what the game had in store. During an Iwata Asks segment, Hitoshi Yamagami, the game's second producer, reiterated the team's struggles with an unfamiliar genre, and that they had already begun work on Xenoblade Chronicles before Disaster had been released. It's likely, after some of the more scathing responses to the game and lackluster sales, it was considered a better move to simply never port the title to US shores. While games journalists can have an impact when it comes to international localization, there is a more influential voice that may have been the true cause when it comes to Disaster Day of Crisis, the former president of Nintendo of America, Reggie fils -Aimé. Upon release, Reggie was extremely vocal on his distaste for the title, calling it not just laughable, but also overpriced. Reggie said that he would keep an eye on the game's sales reception overseas in Europe before backing a North American release. I think it's safe to assume it really did not meet expectations, with continued delays having caused deteriorating interest from fans waiting for its release. The game's sales saw it failing to reach any charts at all. A shame, considering Monolith were keen to work on a sequel, already having several plans in draft. In general, Disaster Day of Crisis was not a blow-away, incredible adventure, but a fun romp with a few laughs scattered throughout. Not quite the cutting-edge, heart-pumping survival action that Nintendo had previously touted it as. The Japanese are often seen as the founding fathers for many popular genres of game, perhaps none more so than horror. America saw most entries in the Fatal Frame series, or as it's known in Europe, the Project Zero series. Two games remained overseas, however. One of these was a remake of the second Fatal Frame for the Wii, but today we'll be looking at the other, the fourth entry in the series, Fatal Frame Mask of the Lunar Eclipse. 
Fatal Frame Mask of the Lunar Eclipse released exclusively to Japanese audiences in 2008 for the Nintendo Wii and marked the series' first venture onto Nintendo hardware. All prior games were only released for both PlayStation 2 and Xbox. Mask of the Lunar Eclipse was published by Nintendo themselves, and they were partially involved in the game's development process alongside Grasshopper Manufacture, while lead development was handled by series creators Tecmo. To ensure that each game could act as a standalone entry in the series, the team decided against having a numerical indicator for each title. While there are consistent elements that tie the games together, they can be played individually as self-contained stories. Chronologically, Mask of the Lunar Eclipse is the first entry in the series' timeline. The year is 1980, six years prior to Miku Hinasaki entering the Himuro Mansion in the first Fatal Frame release. Of a group of five friends, two of the girls have passed away under inexplicable circumstances. Of the remaining survivors, Misaki Aso and Madoka Tsukimori return to the island they grew up on, hoping to solve the mystery surrounding their friend's demise. After not hearing back from Misaki and Madoka, Duka, the game's main protagonist, decides to follow suit. What ties these girls together is that they know they were kidnapped on the island 10 years earlier, but strangely they have no memories of the place other than that they were found together, unharmed, and were taken off the island. It isn't long before Madoka is killed by angered spirits and Kirishima appears, responding to Duka's mother's request to help her while on the island. The Hidden Moon Disease, a disease that has spread across Dogetsu Island, also known as the Luna Sedata Syndrome, is the English translation chosen for Getsuyubyo. Other possible translations would be tranquil moon disease or secluded moon disease. Patients suffering from this affliction slowly lose their memories, eventually leading to confusion and paranoia. The disease got its name because one of the side effects was patients seeking out the moon. Seeing the moon or standing in its light would calm them down, and they seemed to temporarily reach clarity. They would be scared of any reflective surface because they weren't able to recognize their own face, claiming that it looks blurred or distorted. The disease can be transferred just by sight. You only have to witness the face of someone in the later stages of the hidden moon disease to contract it yourself. The camera obscura is an invention by Dr. Kunihiko Aso. Searching ways to get closer to the afterlife, Aso invented several devices that could capture supernatural phenomena, like a camera and a spirit radio. Throughout his life, Aso continued improving his camera technology and left them behind in places he thought they could be of use someday, like the hotel he was staying at while on Dogets Island. The camera was later gifted to the local Aso Museum, where it is picked up in 1980 by Madoka and later Duka. Several film types can be loaded into the camera, which have different levels of power. The higher the power of the film, the more effective it will be in capturing ghosts. Zero film, however, is its own class and the most powerful. Some of Fatal Frame's final bosses can only be defeated by this rare type of film. The camera can also be upgraded to, for example, capture a wider angle or take more powerful shots. Filters and lenses can also be applied for bonus damage or other attributes. These upgrades can be purchased with crystals found throughout the game or points accumulated through fighting ghosts. Points can also be used to unlock additional outfits. Fatal Frame 4 was the first game to include a new weapon, the Spirit Stone Flashlight. Developed by Dr. Aso, it supposedly contains a Spirit Stone as the name would suggest, giving it the power to exercise ghosts with a concentrated blast of light. Lenses can also be applied for extra power or other functions. Development for Mask of the Lunar Eclipse was split across three studios, with Tecmo taking charge of gameplay and atmosphere, while Grasshopper Manufacture took control of the game's character animations and a variety of other elements. Nintendo was also involved, managing general production of the title. The game was initially conceived when series co-creator Keisuke Kikuchi first took notice of Wii hardware. He, alongside the other series co-creator, Makoto Shibata, took on the roles of producer and director respectively, while also bringing in Goichi Suda, 
also known as Suda51, to help co-direct, co-write, and design the title. Suda was initially unsure about working on the project because of his distaste towards horror titles and ghosts in particular. The Fatal Frame series was created with the intention of making a scary title for a Japanese audience, leading the team to move away from monsters or zombies which they felt geared more towards a Western audience, choosing to feature ghosts instead. With Mask of the Lunar Eclipse, the team chose to base the game on a desolate island in the 1980s to have the characters seem truly alone, with cell phones having not yet become commonplace either. Makoto Shibata and Keisuke Kikuchi were interviewed by Nintendo for the game's release. Shibata spoke about how the duo were excited to be working with a large selection of developers, as they felt it would make everybody work harder to create a great game. They accredited Nintendo for keeping them on their toes, making sure the story had no vague plot holes, and telling them when they thought it wasn't scary enough. A selection of easter eggs are also found in the game, courtesy of Nintendo's attachment. After completing the game, the player unlocks two Nintendo outfits, Zero Suit Samus from the Metroid series and Luigi, a la Luigi's Mansion. With such an iconic set of developers attached to the title, it was surprising to many that there was a lack of localization internationally after all prior releases in the series made their way overseas. Fans of the series made their displeasure of this quite apparent. Nintendo of America president Reggie Fizame claimed in an interview with MTV at the time, We are not the publisher of that title in the Americas. Not long after, this was followed by an official statement from Tecmo. Nintendo holds the publishing rights to Fatal Frame Wii, which was developed by Tecmo and Grasshopper Manufacturer and released in Japan on July 31, 2008. Nintendo of America has since then decided not to publish the title in North America. Consequently, the title will not be released in this territory. As the owner of the IP, Tecmo feels very unfortunate that the fans of the series in North America will not have a chance to play the game, but respect the final decision made by Nintendo of America. Rumors circulated online that the actual reason was because of a dispute between Nintendo and Tecmo. Allegedly, Nintendo requested that Tecmo make alterations to the game for Western release in order to fix a number of bugs, as well as the game's often criticized controls, to which Tecmo had apparently refused. Whether this is true, however, it has not been confirmed. Adding to the confusion, online reports indicated that the game was set for a European release. The game received store page listings on European websites, and popular localization company Xseed spoke on the matter of a US release. When asked if they would be localizing the game, executive VP Ken Berry stated, If you're talking about Fatal Frame 4 for the Wii, then it's coming to the US, even though it won't be by us. Can't tell you who's bringing it over, but keep your eyes peeled for an official announcement, hopefully sometime soon. There were even paid-for advertisements in Nintendo Official Magazine for both France and Spain in April 2009, claiming that the game will haunt your Wii next month, suggesting a proposed release in May of 2009. One thing's for certain, though, the game ultimately did not see any international release. As a result, fans of the game created their own translation patch in January 2010. This required files to be stored on an SD card or USB hard drive, making sure to not contribute to piracy of the game. The team ensured that an official retail copy must be present in the disk drive in order to execute the patch, which would also bypass the console's region locking. At the time, Homebrew on the Wii console was in its infancy. Through the use of an exploit of the console's SD card menu, the translation worked before any semblance of a Homebrew channel existed. Since then, the translation can now simply be launched through the Homebrew channel.